Welcome to Activate, a podcast for mobile marketers brought to you by Remerge. Take a short break from your screen and listen to what's working in mobile marketing and what's not, straight from the people who are doing it now. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hey everyone, you are tuned in to another episode of the Aptivate podcast brought to you by Remerge. Thank you all for listening as always. If you're enjoying the podcast, give it some stars, whatever amount of stars you think is fair, even if it's low, because then hopefully we can make it better. In any case, I as always am your host, Tommy. I as always have a fantastic guest on the line with me today. This is a guest who has a fair amount of experience working in the space, but also some experience working in some kind of different industries. So I'm super excited to get their perspective. And I think we're going to be talking about a subject matter that I, it's shocking, but I haven't really gotten into enough in this podcast really at all, which is the subject of programmatic media buying and some tactics around it, some of the trends that we're seeing, et cetera. In any case, I don't want to give away the actual subject matter too much. So without further ado, today's guest is Pau Quevedo, who is the DSP lead for Good Game Studios. Pau, how's it going? Hey, Tommy, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. It's Monday. How was your weekend? Pretty good. Yeah, we'll see. I got two kids and last weekend before the full lockdown. Let's see how it plays out. But last weekend before lockdown? Are you guys going on lockdown this week? No, but in, in Germany, it's, it's just happening eventually. So we're kind of like waiting for it. Yeah, same with here in the States. It's been strange and it's about to get stranger this winter. It's going to be a long winter, but we'll all get through it. And you just gave it away. So you live in Germany. Where specifically? I live in Hamburg, the beautiful port of Hamburg. Interesting. I don't think I've interviewed anyone from Hamburg yet. Just Berlin, predominantly, as you can imagine, because Berlin's a big tech kind of center. Does Hamburg have a big tech kind of presence or a gaming presence? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, the big firms, the big media outlets are all here. Like, for instance, Google, Facebook, they have the main headquarters in Hamburg, not in Berlin. Interesting. Yeah. And it used to be like, uh, it's the main media hub of Germany. Plus, is the gaming hub. There's uh, the biggest gaming companies in Germany are in Hamburg. It's probably because I work for Reemerge, and obviously we're based in Berlin, that I thought Berlin was the epicenter of all of this. So I'm obviously subjective, but it sounds like it's Hamburg, but... More for the big ones. Yeah, I think it's historically. And then I actually lived in Berlin for five years, so I know. I also know the scene there. And they do have also big companies there, but most of the big giants in media, they're all here, like Bettelsmann Group, some German companies as well. So it all came from here. But now I would say that Berlin kind of like picked up really well with this whole startup scene. So probably for programmatic DSP, I don't know, online marketing, Berlin is the place to go. Yeah. For app business, for sure. That makes sense. Which city do you prefer? Berlin. Yeah? Yeah, it's amazing. Berlin is a fun place. I haven't been there this year and it makes me very sad because I truly miss it. It's like an island inside Germany. It's its own thing. It's really crazy. It's a really cool spot. For all listeners out there, if you haven't been to Berlin, find some tickets when you're able to travel again and go because it's really a special place. In any case, Pau, so you've been in Hamburg. You said you were in Berlin before that. I'm guessing you've lived a few different places throughout your life, but I'd love to kind of get a sense for who you are and what some of your background looks like. Yeah, I'm Pau. I'm from Spain. I actually lived in the States and in Germany some years and also in Mali. So yeah, I'm um, economist as a background and I'm a bit in my early 40s. And when I started my job life, I started in a completely different industry related to economic development and working with NGOs, trying to build up projects in different parts in Central America or in Africa. 
and was pretty nice. But then things took me to Germany at some point, love and that kind of thing. And in Germany, there's a blooming scene of startups and it was quite hard for me to find a job in my old thing. So about eight years ago, I started to work in the online industry. I started actually with desktop and then I moved into paid social, then was doing that for some time. And then about, I would say three, four years ago, I started doing programmatic. I had some experience prior to that. And the last three years or so has been my focus being in-house in programmatic. I work for gaming companies and in gaming companies, as you know, we have large amounts of spend in different channels. So we actually want to diversify. We've actually hit diminishing returns in channels like Facebook or Google. So we have to look outside. And that's where I found programmatic. It's really challenging. And we can talk about it. It's really challenging. I'm super stoked to talk about that and in-housing and some of the movement going on there. It is new for this conversation. But I am curious real quick. You went from a non-related industry into gaming, where you started in media buying, I'm sure at some other startups, and then ultimately you arrived at gaming. And you've been doing the gaming bit for quite a few years now. Was there something particular that attracted you to joining a game development studio in the first place? Can you remember what made you want to do that? Yeah, I used to play professionally Quake 3 back in the late 90s. And I'm a Quake 3? Yeah, Quake 3. And I'm a huge Quake 2, Quake 3. Yeah. And I'm a huge gamer, like uh, totally. In. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it just came together really nice. You played professionally? Yeah, but back in the days, it was quite a different thing. We were just a sponsor and we would play, uh, yeah, I would play like in a team or we won some championships. It was completely different stuff. I should have been born maybe 20 years later. But <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is back then. Yeah, there was you no make- such thing as esports. No, no, no. I mean, there was only a couple of guys in the industry and the number one in Spain who actually got to top in the world, he couldn't live off it. So, Oh, wow. That's great. Can you imagine today? I mean, if you're number one, you're probably a rich person at this point. Yeah. In any uh, game. That's crazy. Uh, absolutely. Achilles was his name. He would probably be rich now, but back then he was not. <laughs> yeah. Dang. Poor guy. Well, hopefully he's still gaming and maybe these days he's making it happen. Either way, you're at Good Game Studio today. For the listeners who aren't familiar with your development studio or some of your titles, could you give us a quick synopsis of who you guys are? Absolutely. We are Good Game Studios. We are a gaming company from Germany, from Hamburg. It's over 10 years of life. And we are part of the Steel from Group. This company was about six years ago, had the largest app in Germany. And we have an old legacy lab. It's called Empire for Kingdoms. And that's a very successful app in the past. And apart from that, we have other like a big farm or now we're working on other soft launches. We have also many other apps, but those two would be the most important ones. We're also part of the Steelfront Group. That is a big holding of different studios. There's another one here from Hamburg called Vitro Labs as well. And it's over 16, 17 studios. They keep growing. And we also do marketing for some of those studios because some of those studios, they actually they rely on our marketing activities. So we don't only do marketing for our games, but also for other titles. So do you find, because Stillfront, it sounds like it's operating as a, an umbrella company over a bunch of different game studios. Are you finding that with game development studios within Stillfront that do have their own marketing department? Are you still working together with them to strategize or are things pretty... Absolutely. There are other companies that are as large as ours. For instance, StoreMate from the US or Nanobit, it was recently acquired. And they have really strong marketing departments and we share all the time. Or Candy Rider, you might know them from the US as well. Yeah. They're all yeah. part of the Stillfront. And we have a very extremely active Slack group and we share all kinds of best practices from iOS 14 to what do we do with TikTok or what do we do with Facebook, it's DSP. That's great because we get all the points of view from different, like inside gaming, you know, there are different inside 
little verticals, right? There's like people who are only doing hyper casual or mid-core, hardcore, and it's great to see the different point of view. That's awesome. It's unique, right? I mean, I know a lot of studios will have multiple titles and teams working on them, but it's rare, I think, to find that kind of situation that you guys are in, right? Where it's more of an umbrella and you guys have all developed successful games to lead you to get acquired. Now you can share so many bits of information with each other. It must feel really cool. Exactly, because the Steel From Group is based on companies that actually had successful titles in the past. Yeah. And we don't depend on a new hit because we have very stable revenue streams. And that gives us the possibility to actually do good products. And it's really great. And you inhabit a role that, from my perspective, and please correct me if I'm wrong, right? You're the DSP lead or lead of programmatic trading, whatever you want to call it. It's an important role, but it's not one that I find as commonly in the gaming space articulated this way. Meaning, more often than not, whenever I come across someone who manages programmatic, they're under the title of UA, right? UA manager, for example, or growth manager, and they manage some programmatic. They might manage some social TikTok, emerging platforms, whatever it is. They might manage a wide diversity of platforms. But it sounds like your team at Good Game has specifically pinpointed programmatic as an important source for your team of driving new growth and installs or or whatever you want to call it. So yeah, I'm curious to understand what led your team to find that programmatic would be so important that you needed to actually have a person managing that specifically. The situation is that how we have it sorted inside in our company is that teams are growth teams and they just tackle games. So they would do all kinds of the whole area of channels. But we believe that programmatic is a bit more specific channel that requires perhaps a little different kind of skills in order to make it happen. To put it in a way that we actually understand each other. In the other platforms I used to do Facebook myself, you don't really worry about the tool itself and you don't really understand when you make a bid what's going to happen that it turns into a user because that whole ecosystem is provided you by Facebook. It's like you start a campaign and it's Facebook will find those payers and that's it. And then you work on your creators or whatever. In programmatic, unfortunately, you have to check everything on your own. You have to find out how you actually get to that supply and how you're buying it. All that thing that Facebook would do for you, if we compare it to, to Facebook, you have to in-house that. So that requires a set of skills that actually UA managers do have. I consider myself also a UA manager, but we're a bit different. I'm not focused on soft launching and growing products with different channels. And I believe that's a different set of skills. Mine is a bit more specific. I think you are absolutely right. You normally don't see this position out there. And to be honest, the reason behind is because programmatic DSP is not a big channel for game. If you look at the companies, not many companies outside retargeting are using DSP are large scale to acquire new users. And there's a reason for that. What do you think is the reason for that challenge or issue or you want to see it? Basically, we would have to look at Let's say 2015, a starting point. If you look at back then, the biggest channels for gaming, at least, was the CPI SDK networks. They were really successful. And they could buy those very low cheap installs, and it just worked out on a CPI, CPA basis. But then somehow, Facebook, they understood the device graph with perch optimization 2017, and the whole market changed. All of a sudden, you see them topping the waterfalls, and now you see them also getting most of the budgets. Right, So you go to almost any gaming company and they are investing most of it on the duopoly. There was a change there. And somehow the SDK networks, they didn't catch up. Maybe some did, some didn't. And even some SDK networks turns into DSPs because that allows them to bid on a user level. I know SDK networks also bid on a user level. I don't want to start a fight in that regard because I can sure, sure. be a long conversation. But on a nutshell is that we believe that SDK networks actually sell you on a 
they just pack installs together and they sell it to you. Whereas in the programmatic, you go for each individual user, which is actually what Facebook is doing. Facebook is actually able to target those high pay users and then just buy them at very expensive CPMs. And you don't get those if you bid on ICK network because you wouldn't even be able to. No, yeah. Exactly. So that's why, uh, yeah, it's become very problematic because of the dominance of Facebook and Google. Actually, programmatic, if I actually started a programmatic roundtable a couple of years ago, and I, I onboarded many gaming companies, and I realized quickly that gaming companies were not running programmatic, DSP at large. Very few ones were doing it. You can go to Zoomla and check it. You can see there who is that serving for which company, and you see that it's not so many at large. So that's what it brought us to that point to say, we already invest too much on Facebook, so we have to move to this other channel. So it was a drive to diversify, it was, and it was also, in some regards, programmatic offers you what SDK networks, to your argument, somewhat don't argue, which is the opportunity to actually pinpoint target, to some degree, consumers in a programmatic environment, right? Be it through device graphs, lookalike models, retargeting, whatever IDFA or GAID-based targeting you want to do. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And this started for you, you said, in around 2017, 2018, that you started yeah. looking more into programmatic, yeah? Exactly. How have you seen programmatic change then and evolve since then? Take us through when you first started programmatic, right, at Good Gamer, maybe even in your Inno experience. Games. Yeah. In games, apologies. In Inno games, were you buying programmatic media in-house through a self-serve DSP or were you buying it through external DSPs? And is that still the same case today? Could you walk us through some of the changes? Absolutely. Yeah. It's how we see DSPs. We bundle them in three groups. We bundle them in a managed DSP. That would be like the, I don't want to call it names, so the Liftoff, Moloko, one of those. And then we would have the self platforms where you can actually do a bit more on your own, but not so much. And then we have the bidder, which there's not so many of those, maybe it's Beeswax or Kaysen or Dataseed. So we've actually tested all three versions, or all three models. What we've seen is that the device graph was only strong in the managed ones, and those are the ones that perform, whereas we could actually see some contextual performance on the self-platforms, but unfortunately, contextual will always be beaten by behavioral, so the device graph would always beat them. We saw some contextual performance in the self-DSPs, and we also tried contextual on the bidders, but that was a complete disaster because... The problem that we see here is that over time, the managed platforms have gotten stronger because of the fact that they are actually uh, accumulating QPS that they actually model for the other companies. So they are accumulating data for years, where some self-DSPs, maybe they didn't have so many clients and they were not able to understand the device graph. And the bidders, the third element, they are just isolating your data. So they are never able to get to give you an algorithm that is actually learn upon the other advertisers. Yeah, or even learn upon the landscape of history, right? Like if you have a bidder on its own and you say, I'm about to pump money into this for my brand, it's only focused on servicing your brand, but it's not taking into account what does the past history of this bidder look like relative to our advertisers. Is that at all accurate? The bidder might do it. We actually didn't get that far. We only run like two tests with them. And I wouldn't be able to tell you that, to be honest. In your testing, at least to start, and maybe this is still the case, you found that the managed platforms were the most effective at hitting your KPIs because of the device graphs they had available to them, more or less. Exactly. And those is hard to in-house because how are you going to in-house a device graph? It's just setting up the targetings. But in-housing means actually that you either bring your own device graph or that you bring your own contextual algorithms. That's what it means. So it doesn't make sense to onboard a ready-made device graph. Although now there are products in that 
direction. We are actually in-housing them. Really? Yeah. One of the DSPs we work with has a strong device graph, in our opinion, and they recently started self-serving, and we're actually there. So we're trying to figure out how, by collecting log-level data, we are able to somehow improve performance, although we don't have direct access to the device graph, if that makes sense. No, it does. Yeah, I get it. By log-level data, are you saying that bid request data you're taking into account exactly. building device graph in the IDFAs that are stamped in the bid request? Cool. Or even without the IDFA, just the other keys within the bid stream, because the IDFA will be out. So this is exactly where I was going. We talk about the importance of device graphs. We talk about the importance of pinpoint targeting and programmatic and what that provides for you, right? But that goes away in the future to a mm-hmm. large degree. What is your outlook on programmatic buying? What do you think the future of it looks like? Are you optimistic about what it's going to provide or are you pessimistic based on the fact that some of the tools that make it so powerful or the tool, which is the IDFA that makes programmatic often so powerful, will no longer be as accessible to say the least as it is today? It's probably going to be gone if we're being reasonable, but let's just call it as accessible. Yeah, well, until now, if I had to tell you, like you asked me one year ago before we actually even thought that IDFA would be deprecated. I would tell you that the main problem that programmatic has is the waterfall composition and not the header bidding. But iOS came in and it destroyed everything. It's like, okay, nobody talks about that any longer. But we see that Facebook decided to leave the waterfalls and just go header bidding. That was the main point that when I talked to all the changes, they were always telling me the problem with DSP is that you always get late to the auction. When you get there, somebody else took the best user in front of you. So we're always hoping this header bidding will remove this issue. In a way, I was hoping that this contextualizing everybody's the same level is actually going to help DSPs because it cannot get any worse. Right now, Facebook and Google are completely dominating it. Some SDK networks are even stronger than some DSPs. So going fully contextual is not actually bad because everybody has to go back to contextual. And actually, these these self-DSPs I was talking about, they have years of experience in contextual. I'm actually talking to some DSPs and they are not that unhappy. Of course, for retargeting, it's going to be a big issue. I totally agree. But for UA, there's maybe some room to explore in contextual. And we've seen how in LAT traffic, LAT on traffic, which is contextual, that has been performing quite well in normal DSPs for a year or more. So why can't we have this very same performance now that the IDFA leaves? That could be, and that is not so crazy to think so. But again, it's all going to depend as well on how the publisher actually structure, how they sell. And that's really important. There's a lot to unpack here. And you started with waterfall versus header bidding. And I'm curious, because there's going to be some listeners who aren't as familiar with these subjects, would it be possible for you to give a quick synopsis of what the difference between the two is, or is it too big to do? No, no, it's fine. In fact, I also have background in ad monetization. So the publisher decides how he wants to structure the way that he sells impressions. So each impression is, the publisher has two ways of doing it. One is he sets a waterfall, which means that he sets priorities for different buyers of those impressions. Offers an impression and then says, okay, who is first on my waterfall? Normally it's Google or Facebook. Normally it's Google. So they would say, okay, Google, how much you want to pay for it? If Google doesn't want that impression, goes again, maybe to Google again. And there's a different pricing for Google. And then goes to Facebook and then goes to Unity Ads and then to whoever. And then goes at the end to DSP. That is fighting against a header bidding, which is another solution, which is everybody in real time bids for one impression at the same time. The problem with that is that there are some latency issues and there's also even a waterfall within the header bidding. But nowadays, how the gaming companies have set it up is normally they have a hybrid system. 
they would sell their impressions on a waterfall and also a header bidding. But the waterfall will be the one that is leading the pricing because you set the highest prices on the waterfall and that will lead the whole pricing also for the header bidding. So it's the header bidding that is following the waterfall. And until that is not gone, whatever stays on the waterfall will get more impressions. When I compare DSPs in our own waterfall, wouldn't get more than 30% of the traffic, whereas the waterfall would get around 60% and the header bidding another chunk. So that's the issue, that there's a problem of access to the inventory, a supply path. Like in desktop, there's years ago, supply path optimization. We don't have this on mobile. And there's also a lot of intransparency. And this is how, yeah, the waterfall and the header bidding is set. And we DSPs, we want to have the header bidding. Header bidding, yeah, because it would democratize kind of the manners in exactly. which you can bid. It would make it a true open auction, whereas now if there's priority, then you can't argue it's a democratized open auction, right? It means there is some subjectivity applied to how we go about doling out impressions. Exactly, exactly. So cool. That makes sense. Awesome. Thank you for clarifying what that means. And then you also brought up the idea of contact, like how the future of programmatic buying will be centered predominantly in your opinion, not predominantly, but partly on contextual targeting, for example. And was your argument that contextual targeting will also democratize kind of the landscape in the sense that these self-serve DSPs, these bidders as a service, even the managed DSPs will all be operating on the same kind of level playing field where doesn't matter how much data you have from the past or what device graphs you've built. More or less, all, more or less. Yeah, yeah, we're all now working with the same metrics. And now it's a matter of saying, what of these metrics are we going to pull and who's going to be the most efficient in pulling them? I think you phrased it perfectly. For our reference, when you say contextual targeting, could you give us some examples of what some levers are that you think will be important for us to pull in our optimizations in the future of programmatic media? Of course. When you get a bid request, you're getting a signal which is telling you, Tommy is about to watch a, a video, right? So in this moment, we'll get a whole set of keys of information. We call them keys. We will tell me he's using an iPhone, it's 12 p.m., he's whatever you are in Maryland, some information about you. And then out of those information, there is one piece of information, which is the IDFA. So out of all those pieces of information, what I'm trying to estimate is a conversion rate at that CPM price. So I say, I'm expecting that I'm willing to pay up to 200 euros cost per paying user. Let's say if you go down there, no? So you will estimate if this person can actually be a pay user because there's an iPhone, because there's some elements. But the problem is that that is contextual. You're actually modeling all those different elements and then you would weight them differently. Normally, the ones that are mostly weighted is the publisher, time of the day, device, like those, and each game might have a different one, okay? But you can easily calculate those. But there's one particular one, which is the device ID, the IDFA. And if that one you know that it's a payer, I don't care of the any other variable in the whole thing. If it's 5 a.m. or 4 a.m., I don't care. I know it's a payer, and I'm going all in. And that's it's why like a waterfall. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So that's why the device guy were so powerful, because they didn't, you put weights on each element. 10% if the device is this, 5% of the time. But if the device graph is 100%, I don't care. So that's why it was so much powerful compared to the other contextual elements. And that's what we mean by contextual, going to all the other elements apart from the behavior, apart from yeah. the person. So the future is one in which you are focused predominantly on geo, time of day, publisher, supply yeah. partner. We are hoping to see more. For instance, there are some that had been used by the networks and that DSPs were very slow adopting. For instance, session death. That tells you how many impressions the user has seen already during this gameplay. 
And that oh, it really wow. tells you, yeah. So the early impressions are always in the waterfall on top. So they are much more valuable because we believe that the user hasn't been playing for so many minutes. So they are willing to change and to convert. If they've been playing for 10 minutes, they're deep in the game and they're not going to convert. So that's why the early impressions are way more valuable, the early session impressions. That is something that networks know for ages and they've been optimizing on, whereas the DSPs don't because they don't have the full flow. So some of them, what they do is that they try to guess which position you are in your session depth, how many times they've seen you before, and they think, oh, maybe it's four times, and then they will be yeah. accordingly. That is, for instance, so one like, of the ones... Like frequency capping. Is exactly. And that is, for instance, Fiverr now is introducing new contextual keys that they actually want us to be testing. And, so, and one of those is that, or for instance, a RAM that they have left. How much battery do they have left? Do they have actually a good Wi-Fi or not? Are they going to download that? Because maybe the Wi-Fi is not so good. But you can see those things, and those are coming in the contextual more and more. I wonder how much some like you, the session depth. Yeah, I could see it. Something like battery life, and this is just my opinion. It's not a podcast for my opinion, but I'm just gonna say it. Like, I don't see that actually mattering. And I hate using intuitive or anecdotal data to form a conclusion. But the reality is, I've never been on my phone and been like low on battery and said, "Okay, I'm not going to look at this ad or something like that, or click this ad and download this game because of that." So it's challenging, but it's going to be fun to see which new things come out and which kind of metrics we start using at a higher degree to really power our media spend. Yeah. When we actually did it with the visit, we only used six metrics because it's actually really hard to model more. So we only model out of the 100 something keys that you get with each bid request, we didn't model more, more than six. And it was like time of the day, day of the week. Those are really important. As we know, weekends. Yeah. We didn't model that so many. So you've tested some of this sort of contextual targeting on LAT traffic already. Oh, no, even on non-LAT. I have matched that against a device web partner and seen the difference. Wow. But you found that it performs for you quite well still. So you're bullish that the future will still be one in which we're able to perform it. The contextual needs to really understand the waterfall compositions needs a lot of work and needs to find those pockets like iPad or LAT on back then, you need to find pockets, but it will not work at large scale until now. I believe that now is the new movements that are mostly about Facebook going head of bidding and other elements in that direction. I believe that DSPs might have a chance. So you broke down DSPs into three sections earlier, manage, self-service, and bidders as a service, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, In this future, where again, we're assuming there's more of a level playing field across the board, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think that one of these three categories is going to end up being the predominant kind of source for DSP buying? Or do you think they'll all still play an important role? I think they're different. I think there's going to be a battle between manage and self. And I believe many manage are going to be starting to turn into self because as I said, contextual will be more important. So they cannot really just click device graph and let it run. And the moment, and they will maybe start requiring from the advertiser a little bit more hands-on. No? Whereas the bidder is a different concept. The bidder, I believe, is really good for big companies. I'm aware that some big companies are using beeswax, for instance, because it's a way, for instance, you have a, you're a big company, you have a, a DMP, you have a large pool of data. Maybe you don't want to build a bidder, or maybe you do, but at the beginning you don't. So you would then rent a bidder where you can actually market your own DMP data without putting into risk to any of the algorithm that's going to learn from your data. So that's what some big companies are doing, and it makes total sense. And then they white label it, let's say, no? They white label this DSP and they sell that. So I believe there's each one will find its own way, but manage itself 
there will be a lot of blurring lines between those two. Do you think both will ultimately survive or do you think one will, you're saying the blurring of lines, do you think the lines will blur ultimately to self-service options and managed service will mostly go away? Before you mentioned that managed will now be at the same level as, as self, I believe that since they have a history of device graph and they've probably been also modeling those other contextual keys, even in contextual, they're going to be superior to the self platforms, if that makes yeah. sense. And through enough opt-in that they might get, like say, a 10% plus fingerprinting at the beginning, they might be able to get some 20%, 30% of data that will be able to refresh the other models. So they still become, they're still more powerful. But maybe that lasts for one year, let's say. Mm -hmm. And after that, it will all come to what the advertising needs. And I believe that programmatic until now has worked on a self or on a managed, but now I think the advertiser will want to do it on their own. So I believe that these managed services will turn into self. It's super interesting. We predominantly throughout this conversation about programmatic media buying really covered the idea of, again, device graphs, machine learning, that's al algorithms, right? And how algorithms power buying to a large degree and how that's going to change. There's another component to DSPs that's almost always mentioned. If you go on a DSP website, they'll say, yeah, we have the best machine learning, but they'll also always say we have the highest scale. And I'm curious about the subject of scalability and how important that is to you. Like when you're considering new platforms to test or new platforms to buy through, is scale something that you actually put time into investigating or do you just assume that they're all more or less the same scale across the board? By scale, we will be talking about QPS that they actually listen to. Yeah, QPS. The fact is that we work with, let's say, five or six DSPs at the moment. We work with omni-channel DSPs that bring those three, four million QPS, and they don't listen to rewarded video. We wouldn't be able to work with them. It has happened. And if they listen to rewarded video, they would do it through BitSwitch, like a third media party. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we know that's not the way to go. We want direct connections. So actually you don't need a lot of scale to run rewarded video. You don't need to have one of these massive DSPs. A small DSPs that I know from Israel, for instance, that are not very big, but they are able to listen to most of the rewarded video that you need. The problem would come is that I believe, and this is another technique and this is something else, is that you don't necessarily have to go to buy to rewarded video. Maybe you can find users in rewarded video, but maybe you want to find them through natives, through banners, there's TV, yeah. other kind of formats. And that's where it comes a problematic thing is that many DSPs that are focused on rewarded video, they don't have, they are not listening to the other traffic. Yeah. So then it becomes a problem. It's like, okay, you guys can actually buy a lot of rewarded video traffic, but the moment we want to actually put minds to work and say, yeah, but let's do other complex, cool strategies, they cannot. Yeah. They cannot. You got to figure it becomes even more important in the future, right? Like when we imagine a future where, again, now we're going to the marriage of the two, right? Where device graphs are no longer available to you and you can't leverage persona targeting or lookalike modeling, whatever you want to call it. The price you're going to be able to pay to serve an ad will have to go down because you have a much lower degree of confidence in the expected conversion rate of an impression. So you're going to need a bidder that can deliver wide diversity of creative types to your point you just made, right? Rewarded video on its own is not enough, right? So you need to have a wide diversity of creative types at a low cost along a number of supply partners. So I think scale is going to be one of the predominant differences between DSPs in the future. And, and their ability to deliver at scale is going to be so important because costs are going to have to go down for what we're paying for media. Would you agree? I absolutely agree. And I think you are very right. I think costs will... The, like the CPNs will drop, 
but CPIs will go up because conversion rates, as you said, we are not so sure of those users. So probably we will not be so successful making them convert. CPIs will go up, although CPIs will come down. I believe you just picture it very correct. Yeah, it was cool. That's good to know I'm right because you're an expert. So I'm always happy with that. You talk about it and your initial point was that the manner in which you operate programmatically is vastly dissimilar to how you operate in Facebook today, or even like UAC campaigns, right? UAC campaigns, for example, are focused predominantly on what are the creative iterations we can make? Because that's what, in my experience on this podcast, that's what I've heard a lot. USC, you said it, you forget it, but you got to make a lot of creative changes, look at some data. In programmatic, the points of data you're looking at are so nuanced, right? And there's so much that goes into it. And you're really looking into every single metric of a campaign. So it's been so fascinating hearing about your experience and really excited to see what 2021 brings to the DSP marketplace. Yeah, I'm actually quite confident it's going to be a good year. Retargeting or some issues might be a bit more complex, but uh, I think there'll be a solution for some of our problems that we're facing. And as I said, it's the year of contextual. Let's see. The year of contextual. That's a good title for this podcast. We'll do that. Thank you so very much for joining. I love talking programmatic and it's rare that I talk about it on this podcast. So I, I genuinely appreciate your insights. You're an absolute expert. And I hope we can chat again in 2021 and see Absolutely. if anything we've mentioned here is actually what ends up happening. <laughs> Lord knows what's actually going to pan out. Yeah, let's circle back. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. And I had a great time, really. It was really nice. Thanks. To all our listeners, today's guest is Pau Quevedo, who is the DSP lead at Good Game Studios. Thank you so much, Pau. Thanks for taking a break with us and listening to our weekly episode of Activate by Remerge. If you enjoyed what you heard, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. The more people you tell, the further we can spread these awesome mobile marketing insights. See you next week.